0: Philando Castile was driving home from dinner with his girlfriend and his child. Botham Jean was eating ice cream in his living room in Dallas. Atatiana Jefferson was babysitting her nephew at home in Fort Worth, Texas. Eric Reason was pulling into a parking spot at a local chicken and fish shop. Dominique Clayton was sleeping in her bed. Brianna Taylor was also asleep in her bed. These are just a few of the examples of the everyday activities people of color were doing prior to losing their lives at the hands of the police. And now we have George Floyd, who was at a grocery store, and Richard Brooks as the latest victims. We're recording this on June 25th, 2020. Will we look back on this moment in time and say this was the start of a truly fundamental shift for our country? Is this time truly going to create lasting change? And if so, why welcome back friends to a very special and very important episode of aldersgate on air james truslow adams coined the term the american dream in his 1931 book the epic of america His American dream is that dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement. It is not a dream of motor cars and high wages merely, but a dream of social order in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and be recognized by others for what they are, regardless of the fortuitous circumstances of birth or position. In this episode, we'll explore this definition of the American dream and what it will take to make it a reality. We are joined today by Boris Henderson, Aldersgate's Chief Strategy Officer, and Veronica Calderon, Aldersgate's Chief Diversity, Inclusion, and Equity Officer. Both are incredibly accomplished academically, professionally, and personally. And through actions and words, they're working to make the world a better place for everyone. Today, Boris and Veronica are going to speak from their personal experiences on growing up in an America that treats people differently based on the color of their skin. And because the best way to solve a problem is to start with the truth, they will be speaking unedited from the heart. By no means are Boris and Veronica the only people of color who represent Aldersgate. This nonprofit life plan community employs people from 34 different countries. Aldersgate is an inclusive organization that values the richness of diversity and allows each individual the opportunity to contribute their gifts in significant ways to the success of the organization and the betterment of the community. Aldersgate celebrates the value and voice of each individual and engages people of different thoughts, lifestyles, skills, talents, and resources in creating communities and services. I'm looking forward to having this courageous and candid conversation with Boris and Veronica. And because this subject matter is so important, we didn't want to limit the content to try to make it fit into a shorter timeline. So because of that, we'll be bringing you a very special, uncensored, unedited, and uncut episode that will run a little longer than normal. But don't worry, we left a place in the middle for everyone to take a little break. So open your minds. Open your hearts as we discuss a topic that is truly impacting the heart of the nation. Hi, Boris. Hi, Veronica. Welcome to Aldersgate On Air. Thank you so much for having this conversation today.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Great, Mike. Thanks
2: thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, honor is all mine. So... Obviously, we have some pretty heavy topics to talk about in the world, and I'm sure that we're all on the same page and that we agree that these are conversations that need to happen, hopefully to produce a better outcome and a better sense of understanding on everything. So I think that, uh, Boris, you and Veronica both have a really, really, really rich history that brings a lot to the Aldersgate table and also brings a really cool perspective on to where you're at and what's going on in the world today. So um, If you don't mind, Veronica, why don't you just kind of start us off? Tell us a little bit about how you're feeling during these times and just kind of describe today how you're feeling during the state of the world.
1: Yeah. So I guess part of me feels very anxious of and, and with a sense of urgency. And both of those things just come from we need to do more. We need to do more. We need to do more. Um, and also just exhausted, i um, truly exhausted by what I see, by, by how I feel and by how the people that I love are feeling and the burden that they carry on their shoulders and the burden that I carry on my shoulders. So, so all of that leaves me exhausted, but then that sense of urgency builds up again in me and says, okay, wait, it, it's time to shake that off and, and do something about it. How about you, Boris?
2: Right, Mike, uh, as you can imagine, as an African-American male, that's a a very heavy question. Uh, But one thing I'd like to do is start with a a quote from uh, one of my favorite devotionals to kind of level set. And so for today, it says, seek and find the freedom of the spirit. For where there is true freedom, there is peace. And where there is peace, there is love. And it is love that unlocks all doors. So as we think about. Uh, the the pandemic and the the social unrest that we're experiencing today it's you know I, I feel a sense of at times a sense of uh, anger a sense of frustration uh, but I'm also led to think about what's happening in a broader context of you you talk to people who remember the uh, the civil rights movement of the 1960s and you hear their stories and Re experience what they experienced during the 60s. Um, and, and so, in, in a broader context, it's something that we as Americans have struggled with since the founding of this country. Uh, but the way I deal with it personally is to recenter on love and hope and understanding that uh, I, I truly believe that the human spirit. Uh, is in the direction of love and in the direction of, of wanting to do better. So that's what gets me motivated and going on it every day.
0: That's outstanding. And thank you for sharing that quote as well. So Veronica, why don't you tell us about your history? Uh, you came from Ecuador and you've got a very inspiring story. If you, Would you mind sharing that with us?
1: Sure. Thank you. Um, Before I get started, I think the title of, um, every time I hear the word dreamer, um, really sticks out to me because I believe that that's exactly what we did. We started a journey uh, about 21 years ago to find that American dream, and the American dream can be very painful, and people sometimes just don't see the road that leads you to it, but they just see now, right, how far we've come. So yeah, I'm an immigrant. I immigrated from um, Ecuador. Actually, I'm from a very small town by the name of Calceta. and it's uh, very far from the capital. So when we get there, when I go visit, it takes it takes a fl- it takes a couple of flights and a couple of um, car rides to get there. But not unless it's it's beautiful and and it's a place that I hold very n- near and dear to my heart. So. Um, growing up, I was there too. I was about 13 years old, and um, I, I've seen it all. I knew I knew why we were moving. I just didn't know the density of the issues that we were facing to move here, right? So as a kid, sometimes you just don't see what's around you. You just see that you're still able to go to school, you're still eating. Um, but I was raised by a single mother, and she's a mother of three. on a $300 a month salary. And when you think about $300 a month, three kids, a single mother, that's that's exactly where the American dream started. She wanted a better future for us and she knew that the environment that we were in and that um, whatever she was able to provide um, was just not enough. And we were going to either be part of the status quo there, or she was gonna fight for us. And she decided to fight for us. Um, We packed up our bags and in five suitcases and a lot of dreams came with it and less than $200. We moved to the US with my grandmother who had been living here for over 40 years. So, um, you know, my mom has always had this huge conviction as a teacher, as a learner. But um, I, I remember just seeing her work so hard. And, and when you see somebody work so hard and then you also see that they're not compensated for, it, it makes you upset. And that's when we talk about inequities. And, and I could see that from a very early age so um, we moved here in, in the fight in the, um, for a better future, for, for us to go to school, for us to have a better chance at being something and doing something. And, and I always have that in the back of my mind because to me, she, she's my hero. I mean, you talk about mentors, you talk about people that you look up to, and, and that's my mother to me. Um, I, I don't know how she did it. I, I still sometimes have trouble imagining just only took for her to make that decision and, and move here um, with three kids as a single mother. Um, I want to share a quick story that I I have not, I don't think I've I've shared before, but um, something that has, that has made me who I am today. And when I was 10 years old, probably around 10 PM, there was a knock on our door and this was back in Ecuador Our house was very small and there was a knock on the door. And my, um, and I heard it. So I woke my mom up and I said, "I think there's somebody at the door. Um, at the door, there was a little boy. who had to be probably no more than six years old. Um, he was not, clo- He didn't have a lot of clothes. Uh, he looked like he'd been in the streets for a while. And him and my mom had a conversation. They had a little exchange. And all I remember was my mom screaming from the top of her lungs and telling us to go wash our hands and sit on the dinner table. And I was so confused. I was like, what's going on? We had dinner, like we were getting ready to go to bed. We were getting ready to go to bed and and, and find her, her um, and go to school the next day. So, um, and, and usually I'm, I'm not the person who sits quietly, <laughs> um, but I did. I did because I, I was trying to process all of that was going around me. And him and my little brother connected over cars and toys and talking about things and talking about soccer. And my mom was in the kitchen making dinner at 1030 p.m. And so my mom brings dinner over and she, we sat down, we had dinner and we went to bed. Nothing else was said. Little boy went on his way. We went to bed, and it, it's one of those things that kept me up all night. And I said, um, as soon as I woke up, and I said to my mom, "What happened? Who was he? Like, what what was he doing?" And um, and so she said, "She said, well, no child should ever go to uh, to bed um, on an empty stomach." And so we fed him. She's like, hey, whatever he needed from us at this moment, we were going to be able to provide. And then she said something that sticks with me to today. And she said, you give people what you have and not what you have left. And it is it is made me who I am. So I give people who I am and not what I have left. So I give my, my work, I give my full energy and everything that I have and not just what's left. So it's not an afterthought. And that's how I feel around the work that I do around diversity, inclusion, and equity. One, that it's my purpose. Um, I've seen it. It's happened to me. It's happened to people that I love, and it continues to happen in the world. And like what Boris said, it's in the history. It's in the ground of this country. And and it's now up to us, right, to, to make that change, to make that leap. And what does that look like? Um, so fast forwarding to many years, um, I worked for a large, um, for a large uh, financial organization in town, and I remember in one day alone, um, how I, I sit back and I said, "Wow!" I said, "I am discriminated against from whites and from blacks." There was a a black customer who walked in and she said, you are the reason why we don't have jobs. You're stealing our jobs. And then about an hour later, a white customer walks in and he says, you went back, go back to Mexico. And I was dumbfounded. I was like, wow, like what a day. And that was my first week at that location, at that job. And I was like, I I just want to go home and cry. And I did. I went home and cried my eyes out and called my mom and I told her what happened. And she said, it's fine. She said, cry all you need right now. Cry with me and shake it off and do better because now you know better. So you need to be better. So all of that 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 I've been through in my life, I think has always made me an advocate for diversity but more than anything else, a vehicle for inclusion. So, so I I give you that that small picture of who I am as a person to hopefully put into context the work that I'm so passionately about doing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And how about you, Boris?
2: Well, Mike, I'll uh, I'll say this: I, I've had many opportunities to tell my story, and every time I tell it it gets harder to tell, and particularly in the context of everything that's happening in the, the U.S. and around the globe right now. But I was born and raised right here in Charlotte. I was one of five children. My mother uh, had her first child at the age of 13. Uh, so as you would imagine, I got off to a, a pretty rough start. I'm the, the middle child, so I wasn't her firstborn. born. Um, but one of the unusual things about my childhood, you know, right here in Charlotte, North Carolina, we lived in a house with no indoor plumbing. So for the first eight years of my life, I, I lived in that house. It was, um, you know, sometimes when I tell my story, I vividly remember uh, the route to get to it. You had to go up a dirt road and and and, and walk a few. And at the end of the dirt road, there, there the house stood. And uh, so that marked it—the first eight years of my life—and uh, it's one thing to to be poor and to to not have resources, but the the other baggage of, of being poor and and uh, kind of forgotten is you you realize you're poor from what you hear from other folks, and one of the things my mom told me later in life—I guess we were too young to. To share it with us. But she said, you know, people would always say nothing good would come out of our house. Uh, You know, we were poor. We um, couldn't get on with life. And so she said, you know, but something good came out of there. So at the age of eight, we didn't move to what I'm not exaggerating the truth here, but it was one of Charlotte's worst neighborhoods. It was uh, we used to call it Wyatt Street. It's now renamed as Genesis Park, and it was um, separated from an abutting neighborhood by a brick wall, believe it or not. Uh, and on the other side of the brick wall, it was um, uh, a housing project. So, uh, But we were on the other side, and every day there were gunshots. There were uh, people ODing. This is when heroin really hit the... Uh, Streets in the, the the urban core in America in the late eighties and early nineties, and so as a kid, um, you know, sometimes on our way to school, we would see somebody in the neighborhood who got an early start and OD, and but we had to, to process that and move on. Um, you know, I lived there for every two two years, two and a half years, and. Um, I remember the day, um, you know, I came home and my mom was talking to, uh, as a kid, I realized some pretty important people. And, you know, fast forward, she was talking to some representatives from Habitat Charlotte. And so we qualified for a Habitat House and and did all the sweat equity and, and other uh, requirements you needed to meet to, to move into a Habitat home. And And so we moved into a a Habitat home. And when I share my Habitat story, I I remember the moment of walking into that home which represented a new beginning, a new outlook, Um, because it was an environment that was new. It represented stability. You know, there were uh, no gunshots. It was safe to walk around. And that was really... Um, one of the, the pivotal moments in my life that allowed me to to transform. So there's the physical building, but then the community itself had a lot of resources for kids. Um, um, so it was a, a habitat community. In fact, um, President Carter spent time in that community building houses. Uh, so it was really a community of hope. And so as a kid, I was rest- Surrounded with hope and love and lots of prayer. And I, you know, my grades uh, dramatically improved. One thing I left out is, um, don't laugh at me, but I failed the first grade. And it was a time where I was living in a house with no indoor plumbing and didn't have the, the guidance and support I needed. And so that's what happens uh, when kids aren't supported and surrounded with resources and love they need. In uh, any event, fast forward, I uh, graduated near the top of my class uh, here in Charlotte in high school and, and went off to Davidson College and, and uh, really enjoyed that experience and ended up in banking for a while, went back and got my, my MBA from uh, a, a really good university. But, you know, working here at Aldersgate and I tell Suzanne, our CEO and, and anybody who listens, that I feel like it was a calling to come here because I get to do something I love, which is um, I'm primarily responsible for our real estate and development efforts here on campus. But I also get to interact with um, residents who uh, have long histories of uh much of what we're talking about that's occurring in this country. Um, And they have a wealth of knowledge and insight that I've intentionally uh, tried to learn from. You can learn from anybody. Uh, And uh, it also helps me think about my life in a a very different way. You know, I, I think to whom much is given, much is required. So it's, you know, what are you doing with this? life that this you know, life of escaping the, the great odds? Are you quietly living an existence or are you using it to, to impact change? And um, not only your immediate family and your immediate community, but can you use it to impact change on a, a broader scale? So uh, one of the other things I'm involved in is I sit on the Habitat International Board. So I get to share my story globally and to to really try to to impact change globally. Uh, So I'm just really blessed and fortunate to to work for an organization uh, that is really serious about looking at these tough issues, uh, not only within the industry, but within the United States and allowing um, its employees, you know, Veronica and I, to the liberty to do something about it. So in my mind, that's a very humble humbling uh, situation to be in and one that I certainly don't take lightly. Thank you.
0: No, thank you both for sharing those uh, deeply personal uh, stories. It gives us an amazing insight into your characters and how you came to be into the positions you're in and also your outlook on kind of things as they are now. So that being said, I would love to hear from both of you about what each of you thinks needs to happen to move society forward.
1: Yeah, so Boris said something that I was actually gonna bring up right away too, and is to um, to whom much is given, much is required. And, and I think for both of us, um, we've had mentors and angels along the way that have truly helped us um, get to where we are today. And we don't take that lightly, and and that's why it is it is an urgency in us to pay that forward and, and to move that forward. But I would start with education. I think education is extremely extremely important. I serve on the board of a local organization um, by the name of Communities in Schools, Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools, and you know when I see what we do and how we wrap our arms and services around our kids to to kind of pave the way for a better future or they can see the end of the tunnel when they're going through really tough situations, um, gives me hope. Um, it really does, but I, I, I truly believe that everything starts with education, educating ourselves around our biases, educating ourselves around what is it when people talk about structural exclusions and, and racial inequities, what are those structures, those racial structures that have been put in place that continue to keep people down just because of their color or their skin? So I think those are important things that we need to start learning as society to truly understand that when people are asking, they're not asking for more. They're just asking for equal treatment. They're asking for what is deserved. Um, so, so that really comes to mind to me that that's a big thing. It's, it's education.
2: Mike, you know, since I've shared my story, um, uh, I can't hide behind it. So I'll be open and transparent. Um, you know, an RMJJ, which, um, is a, a program I went through, uh, Race equity and inclusion program went through years ago. They described it as you know the system of racism and white supremacy and structural in, in, uh, exclusions have contaminated the lake. And this is a, uh, a an accumulation of actions in the United States and globally that have produced outcomes. And as a Man of color, uh, I feel the the full weight of it because my life has been impacted by it. I just told you about living in a house with no indoor plumbing, and and the, the neighborhood I lived in was run by drug dealers, which uh, many of them felt like that was their only hope of survival. Um, and then so we know that the family structure is in my opinion, one of the the, the great equalizers, because if uh, if you're loved and supported at home and if home allows you to find the resources you need and, and, and give you the hope that uh, every kid needs, then you can overcome odds um, across the, the socioeconomic level, more so than not. Um, and you know, so the thing I think about is I I made it out and I'm grateful. It's by the grace of God, um, but my reality is I've got more friends and family members who are dead or in jail, uh, who didn't finish high school, who have lost hope, um, fighting a good fight um, under the system than have gone on to uh, a college like Davidson college and, and uh, which is where I went and who are doing well in life. So my thought is we have to devote more resources and energy to the kids who are being impacted by the system. The system has produced these outcomes. And if we don't, um, devote more resources to those young minds, then eventually they grow up and have families. And we know broken people uh, produce broken families, so the cycle continues. Uh, we do need to look at the systems that exist in this country in terms of uh, is there equality uh if, if, if you're a person of color do you have the same chances of, of moving up the corporate ladder or uh, having access to to credit and and other things that allow you to to build sustain wealth and to uh, to move ahead because the great American dream is to try to do a little better than your folks did um, but I have a a, a huge inclination to the young people, and uh, because if we don't do more to help that crowd, um, the riots, the the, the burning buildings, uh, the images of racism in this country, there's we're fighting a long, long fight because broken people produce broken outcomes, and and again, the lake is contaminated. We have to work hard on the system, but we also need to address the, the deep du- the deep, deep wounds that exist.
1: And that people who sustain it. Yeah. Because those those ideas of, you know, the racist policies or racial inequities are sustained by racist ideas.
0: Yeah. So some some absolutely uh insightful, thoughtful ideas on on how to move things forward. Did you have anything else that either of you wanted to add to that?
1: I think the other thing is, um, gosh, being able to have very open conversations, very real conversations, um, stepping out of the comfort zone, um, especially if you're not a person of color, stepping out of the comfort zone and asking the questions. And we know that those questions might come out wrong, but we're gonna make it right. We're gonna make it right together. And, And, but having those conversations, being open to listening, but then going from that moment of listening to a movement into action. So not just sitting there and listening to what's been said, but truly understanding, okay, so I hear this now, where am I in this picture and what can I do and how can I use my privilege to move this forward, to break down the systems, to, to build an organization that is anti-racist and that it's, that it tears down systems to allow everyone to have the same race.
0: Yeah. Boris, your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. You know, one thing I, I constantly think about is, um, if you study history um, since the beginning of this country. Great movements have been um, uh, peppered with great leadership, whether uh, white, black. You know, Frederick Douglass is one of my favorites. Uh, Sojourner Truth, um, and you know the, the the great abolitionists. And so the question is, as Americans in this day and age do we have what it takes to uh, create the change that we all want because if you look at the riots it's not just black folks and and the, the 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 black people I know who marched during the civil rights movement will tell you this this feels different because they are there are, white, black, and and different races out here saying, you know, enough is a damn enough. Um, And so that tells me uh, that, yeah, racism uh, and uh, exclusions exist. But as Americans, uh, more of us than not are saying enough is enough. Um, we believe that all men are create men and women are created equal. So it takes leadership to embody those principles and to inspire us all to to move it forward and for it to be become a part of really who we are as Americans, as people. And so I guess my question or suggestion is for, as Americans, for us to, to really look deep down inside and to become those leaders that have moved the needle uh, in the past. We need more of them. And you don't need a sexy title or uh, a certain lot in life to, to be a great leader. Uh, we've also learned that from history. You need a conviction and a willingness to fight for change
0: That's and great. to follow through.
1: Yes, yes,
0: absolutely. Well, uh, I guess what I'm hearing a lot is also be open to the conversation and don't be afraid of the conversation, even if it pulls you out of your comfort zone. If you truly desire to move the needle forward, be okay with asking those questions and then be okay with receiving the honest answers.
1: Absolutely, Mike.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think that's absolutely amazing to hear that perspective, and I also think that right now is going to be a great time for the listeners to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to dive into some really deep questions that really get to the root of what we can do, how we can act, and how we can follow through. So stick around, and we'll be right back.
3: Too many of you to cry Brother, brother, brother. There's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. Yeah. Hey father, father We don't need Escalate. You see, war is not the answer For only love can conquer hate You know, you know we've got to find a way To bring some love and give it day Picket lights and picket signs Don't punish me Just simply cause our hands won't. Oh, you know that we got to find. Drink some understanding here today. Oh, oh, oh. Pick it flat and pick it sound. Don't punish me with brutality. Come on, talk to me.
0: all right welcome back thanks for coming back after our little break there and uh boris and veronica thank you so much for sharing your Deeply personal stories and giving me, as well as the the on-the-air audience, the opportunity to hear your experiences, wisdom, and hope for our future. Um, Fear, of course, is at the root of so many irrational behaviors. Fear of the unknown, fear of doing or being wrong. Just like uh, you are not the only Latina voice or black male voice to speak for your color, I am not the only white male voice to speak for mine. However, if y'all don't mind, I'd like to ask you some questions that might be helpful for some of our audience. Is that all right?
1: Yes. Go ahead.
0: Great. Thank you so much. All right. So, first up on our agenda here then is poverty and racial inequity go hand in hand. Boris, for the white person who might say, I pulled myself up by the bootstraps so black people can too, how do you respond to that?
2: That's a great question. Uh, you know, John Henry Clark gave many speeches and he would say, you know, it's hard to pull yourself up by your bootstraps when you don't have any boots on to, to begin with. And that's really the reality, uh, the truth in that question. Uh, if you look at the, the founding of this country and and who um, the benefits were intended for, uh, people of color didn't have boots to pull themselves up. And after Reconstruction, uh, we know the 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 racial and economic barriers that were raised to uh, make it much harder for uh, for people like me to to start businesses and to have communities that thrive. Uh, uh, you know, recently images of Tulsa and Black Wall Street have been replayed in people's minds. You know, when there was instances where we were. Pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, we didn't have. Um, they were those boots were were taken away. Um, so there's no doubt in my mind that that uh, you know there's white people in this country who really work hard to uh, acquire wealth and to to grow it. Um, but the great reality is that the system and the structure was initially created to support that growth and development. Um and you know the other kind of running joke is it's easy to uh, score when you start out on third base. Uh <laughs> I've heard that in the, that's a great kind of describing the uh pull yourself up by your bootstraps analogy. Um so it's easier to to move ahead when you start ahead.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a logical argument for sure.
2: And again, not to take anything away from, because I have many uh, really close white friends who, um, uh, just because you're white, doesn't mean you were born in and prosperity either. Uh, I mean, I have white friends who uh, were born into tough situations; they had to work hard. And it was easier for them, but um, uh, so let's put it on the air that in order to achieve any. Great and lasting success, you have to work hard. No matter what color you are, uh, particularly in America where it's very competitive. Uh, but my direct answer is, it's hard to pull yourself up when you don't have boots to begin with.
1: Enough said. And you look like
0: you wanted to add something to that, Veronica.
1: Well, I, I just wanted to say I totally agree with him, and and you know he said that we understand that to you know in order to achieve anything we have to work hard. And but he said something that I think needs to be reiterated is that it is easier if you work hard and you are white to get further. Um it, it comes with with that privilege of, of the skin color of the history of how this country was made. So I mean I love the the analogy of you know, you can't pull up why was it, Boris? You can't pull up your, your bootstraps if you don't have boots. I mean, that's that's really deep. But that's exactly where we are and what we where we continue to be is that vicious cycle. Yeah.
2: And l- let me add on to that, if I may. Um, you know, the other thing we have to think about in terms of how privilege and power uh, has been distributed in this country, um, there I don't want the listeners to walk away thinking that uh, all white people have uh, certain views or uh, fit in a a certain bucket. I mean, we're talking candidly here. Uh, My long-term mentor is a, a white man who turned 79 this year, and he has poured so much into my life that it would be hypocrisy for me to not to acknowledge that as Americans we're in this web of history uh, but there are instances where uh, men of color women of color uh, and uh, white people have joined and realized hey you know I was born in a position of privilege but damn it I'm gonna do something to help somebody out who who doesn't look like me, um, and so I just hope we don't uh, lose those stories as we move forward because that's the the story of humanity. That's what we're after. Yeah, you know, I started out with a little more, but I'm going to share it so that uh, I impact another life, and that goes across uh, race and economics.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's it's great that you brought up the idea of mentors, because that's actually where we're kind of going next. And Veronica, you're not in your head, so I already know know (laughs) where we're going with this. But both of you have talked about important mentors to you. Can you describe for us what makes a good mentor so our listeners can understand?
1: So I think Boris did a really good job of talking about that. But um, what I would add is, um, and I know he has a perfect example, but um, when you're trying to be somebody's mentor, Make sure it comes from a really good place. Um, it's not saviorship. It's not like you know I'm just going to be here and be the savior of poor black and brown children. And I'm here because because that is um, then you're not doing it for the right reasons. And that is also felt on the other end. So as, as a recipient of mentorship from amazing people that is, it is felt when it's genuine, when it comes from your heart, and when you're truly trying to teach somebody how to be better and do better because of their own learning and experiences. So so I love what what Boris shared, but I would just continue to add, if we're truly trying to make a difference in somebody's life, let's make sure it comes from the right place. and And it comes from a place of I am going to learn from you as much as I want you to learn from me.
2: Great. and Mike, I'd like to answer that question by walking you through really the great transformation of, of my life. How do you um, have a kid who lived in a house with no indoor plumbing, who failed the first grade, who dodged bullets um, in his childhood to go off to Davidson College and and to... I uh, worked in the financial services industry for a while and 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 involved in and in all these organizations and currently sit on the, the Habitat International Board. How does that happen in one lifetime? Um, and so when we moved into our Habitat House in Optimus Park here in Charlotte, um, one of the most significant things that happened to me was um, – been a part of an after-school program. And it was headed by uh, uh, an African-American man and Mark Davis and uh, an African-American woman uh, named Dawn Hand, which coincidentally has ties to, to Aldersgate. But once they helped me find a sense of purpose and, and confidence um, my grades improve, and and Dawn Han. I still remember the day it happened. She said, "Boaster," she calls me Boaster. She said, "Your grades are getting better. I'm going to tell my mom to hire you in her law firm, and that law firm is Ferguson Stein Law Offices, and it's one of the first civil rights law firm, certainly in Charlotte, and it may be in the, the uh, state of North Carolina. But all of a sudden, I." was in a world where there were black, prominent black um, attorneys, uh, assistants, and there were white lawyers and, and you know, both male and female who looked at me and, and they all told me, if we catch you doing anything wrong, we're going to beat your behind. And so I got that experience, which helped me reposition my thoughts in terms of what I was capable of. And so then I went on to college and at co- in college, I met Ed Crutchfield, who at the time was the CEO of, of First Union. It was right before the uh, Wachovia acquisition. And so, you know, here's a guy who uh, started out with nothing. And now his mentor is the CEO of one of the largest banks in the world. And that, a mentor-mentee relationship, uh, as Ed would say, being a great mentor is being a great friend. He's never tried to steer me in one direction or the other. But one thing I, I learned from Ed, and I learned from Mark, and I learned from Don, is the importance of believing in yourself. If you believe in yourself, you have a chance. And for kids who don't, who aren't tied to caring and loving adults who believe in them, they're never going to believe in themselves. So how do you create change without a sense of confidence and self-love? And so Ed has also taught me the importance of taking risks. You know, one day we were talking and he said, hey, you know, you're a winner. If If you want to go after that, why not? You know, if you fail, just try it again. And so a lot of our kids who grow up in tough environments don't experience that level of support that many of our kids who are in uh, better environments, they experience that they have a different approach to life. And it's hard to, to find any lasting success without that mindset. And so those are examples of how mentors have really helped transform my life and, and the 41 years that I've been on earth. Yeah.
1: And Mike, I, I think one of, um, just want to highlight another thing that Boris said that I think is so important as far as mentorship. And he talked about when um, Don, uh, you know, was able to, to get him the internship and that is sharing social capital. That is that magic word of social capital, and that is sharing what we have to make sure that others have access to it. So we all have social capital in our lives and in our jobs. So how can we make sure that when we're mentoring somebody, we're being that friend, we're not steering them in one or the other direction, but we're being there for them. We're learning from them, but also providing that social capital, that that gets them to that next step, that gets them to see a better future for themselves.
0: Yeah, Great that's point. outstanding. I love that concept of social capital. I, I haven't heard that before, but that's a, that's a pretty powerful image you get from that. Um, thank you, I, that's, that's awesome. Um, I have heard a lot of discussion around what it truly means to be an ally. You know, there's a lot of folks that feel like they're doing the right things but there's also been talk that maybe the idea is great, but they're putting energy into the wrong areas. Boris, what's your
2: perspective on that? Um, the definition of an ally and to be honest with you, I I honestly don't think in terms of, um, allies versus people who are, uh, really supporting, let's call it a, a movement. Um, Because the reality is, I was telling somebody this the other day, and hopefully nobody was listening in. Um, It's easy to go out and march and riot and to verbally display uh, a desire for change. Um, But at some point, that, quote, potential energy has to be converted to action. And so the question is, so what are we doing either individually, collectively, um, and say an ally is conceivably a white person, in our personal lives, uh, in our business, businesses, what are we doing to impact change at a deep level outside of marching or sending a quick email out? What are we putting at, what are we willing to put at risk? Or to give up in order to demonstrate our true commitment for change, and so, and if if you think about an ally in that context, I say an ally would be somebody who's willing to uh, to be impacted the way Black folks are being impacted. Are, are, are you willing to give? Um, money and resources to organizations that are committed to creating a sustainable change? Are you willing and committed to share so- social capital? Are you willing and committed to have frank conversations with friends and family members who may think differently? Um, so for me, it's a matter of, uh, in business term, skin in the game or a demonstration of a deeper level of commitment for change, and and that's not only a, a question of uh, of allies, but it's it's also a question of of everybody else impacted um, by what we're after.
0: Yeah, uh, actions speak louder than words, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. Under normal circumstances, I hear that Aldersgate operates a literacy day camp that invites area children to spend six hours a day with residents to work on their literacy skills. Can you tell us about all the initiatives Aldersgate has underway that support diversity, inclusion, and equity?
1: Yeah, and um, that is just one of the many programs. and, And actually, with a lot of intentionality, they are um, part of who we are. So uh, I think using the, the word program, it's, it's underestimating the power of not just intergenerational learning, but also um, the kids who come from um, the school is a school that it's not very far from here. They come from all walks of life um, you have um, from all over the world from i believe it's over 50 different countries and to see them interact with our residents and give our residents also that spark of life that a kid can bring and um, the kids are learning how to read um, it, it's beautiful to see but furthermore uh, part of our campus we have um, a nonprofit organization that um, it's an after-school program for refugee um, kids in, in, um, in, in our county. And it's called Our Bridge for Kids. And, and Our Bridge has been in existence for I believe a little bit over 10 years, but also having them on our campus and for our residents to be able to not just interact but volunteer there and be part of their programming continues to enhance the intentionality around inclusion and then in and, and, and building a place as far as alter scale that it's welcoming of all um, and and I know that um recently and Boris can speak to this there's another there's another um, initiative that that um, with some high school students. Um, So everything that we do truly is how can we open the doors to our campus? And now our doors look different, right? Now our doors look like a FaceTime or a Zoom call, but how can we continue to intentionally be part of the community that has given us so much, that has given us character, that makes us who we are? We are sitting in East Charlotte, the East Charlotte community, It's the most diverse community in our town, in our city, and diversity from socioeconomic, sexual orientation, gender identity, race, ethnicity, language, everything you can think of. And then we add that precious um, diversity of age and our residents and and the folks who we
2: serve.
0: That's great. Uh, Anything you want to add to that, Boris? No, I, I think she said it all. That's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty right to the point. That's just scratching
1: the surface, Mike.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know we could do an entire show just on that, right? I was right? just
1: going to say, we need an entire podcast for that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I know Brooks has a lot that he's always liked to, to kind of bring to that table as well. He's talked about his passion for that, you know, quite a bit. So, um, So if you two could snap your fingers to change the U.S. today in ways that would change life for people of color, what would you do?
1: Woo, go ahead, Boris. That's <laughs> uh
2: that's a, that's a that's tough, a tough question. That's a heavy but question but I think as as black people, as African Americans, if as you think back to the, the founding of this country and and when we were brought over against our will on, on ships. And we had to endure the, um, uh, the treacherous, uh, ship rides across the Atlantic. Um, and if you look at the, um, the constitution of the United States and what all Americans were, were promised, um, That's what every black person Hope and dream is for You know Go back and look at Dr. King's speeches Particularly the I have a dream speech That's the great reality that We're after Where We're not judged based on the The color of our skin The color of our skin doesn't impact our ability to go out and get the the best possible mortgage or or business loan or advancements within organizations um, it's and it's a country where all men are th- and women are thought to be created equal which means uh, we have the ability like everybody else to, chase our dreams if we're willing to put in the work and what it takes to to reach that dream that it's a true possibility um that we have the ability to drive down streets in america and not feel nervous when the blue lights hit and think is is it my day to um to die in the streets of America simply because I'm a a Black man or woman and made the wrong gesture. Um, So the the great hope is the reason that people across this world knock on the doors of America and why the Statue of Liberty means so much uh, for many. and so it's a matter of equality, which is what we've talked about, and just equal and fair chance. And even, let's be honest, even if things, if we lived in that perfect world, as, as Christ would say, not to get religious or too philosophical, uh, socioeconomic status is still going to be with us. There will still be poor people, there will still be the middle class, and there will probably still be just a few at the top. But that pyramid or distribution isn't based on the color of your skin, but, uh, but it, it's based on other elements, such as um, maybe you uh, want to be a plumber versus a, an investment banker. Or um, you you want to own a small lawn company versus uh, run a Fortune 500 company. So that's the great hope of, of every Black American I know is to, to have a chance, to have an equal chance um, and to uh, not to have to live in fear of if I don't. If I make the wrong move, or if somebody doesn't like me for whatever reason, then my financial future may change. Um, so that's what I would think. Okay. I don't speak for all Black Americans, but that's my thought, and I'm sticking with it. They're your fingers to snap, man.
1: <laughs> so I I <laughs> agree. I agree thousand percent with everything Boris just said, and also as an immigrant, as a female, and as as someone who clearly sees just the racial injustice, just what Boris said, you know, we want things to, we don't need, we, we would like to dismantle the justice system so it can truly be about justice and not by somebody's skin color so that, that everyone can can go through the same process and have the same conviction for what they did and what was committed and not by what they look like. And so I, I think for me, that's that's one of the biggest ones and being able to, to give, and, and Boris said it beautifully, give everyone the same chance to succeed. No one wants to get into the race late. No one wants to run a 40 meter dash halfway through everybody else you know we all want to have the same chance at that 40 meter dash
0: yeah absolutely so here we are today Uh, another black life has been lost at the hands of the police and while we're seeing continuous peaceful demonstrations unfortunately some demonstrations kind of been mixed in with some bad eggs causing violence In addition to making your voices heard, what would you say to our listeners? What are some actionable steps they can take right now to make a difference?
1: I think the first one would be um, to start educating yourself. So um, I've been I've been reading a book by um, Abram Kendi, and the book is called How to Be an Anti Racist. And he talks about how when people say, "Well, I'm not racist." well, that's not enough. You know, we need to move from not being a racist to being anti-racist. And what that looks like is truly understanding what are some of the things that I have power over that I can help dismantle, that I can speak up when I see injustices and not just stay quiet because it's my comfort zone or it's, or it's, it's, it's not my my it's not my wheelhouse or it's just not something that I'm used to talking about. But if we're really trying to make that paradigm shift and and want to show that we care and that we're part of it, and like you said earlier, that we're allies, we need to speak up and we need to learn, but we need to listen. We need to listen to those lives who have been impacted because Mike, you said it earlier, you know, it. you're also learning with us as we're having this conversation. But, you know, a lot of us don't, we don't understand what it is to have a conversation with our child to tell them what it is to drive because they're black. And and what they need to comply with. And and I know those are conversations that I've had with Boris, but but this is the understanding that I believe will continue to shift America and, and what we can have a step at altering the history. It's it's that learning, that learning and and becoming anti-racist and, and fighting against the racist policies and the racial inequities. And also the racist ideas that that we can personally impact.
2: Okay, Boris, Mike, my, my uh, nickname here at Aldersgate is uh, a <laughs> pastor or church boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who <laughs> okay. gave you that so <laughs> I'm going back to uh, really a, a spiritual response to the question. Okay, and. You know, Emmett Fox wrote, pass a test in spiritual understanding and never again throughout eternity will that particular task have to be done. I really do believe, uh, you know, fundamentally, if if we examine the core issue of, of racism and, uh, you know, call it white supremacy, it's fundamentally an issue of the heart um we know that people are created equal no matter what shade um your your skin tone is or or what part of the world you're you're born into so it fundamentally we have to leap look deep down inside and question those tightly held beliefs and assumptions we have about other people people who don't look like us um people who uh, don't live in the neighborhoods we live in, people who don't uh, who aren't in our income brackets, people who uh, don't eat the type of foods we eat. Uh, so we have to examine those beliefs and the genesis of those beliefs. And if we're honest with each other with ourselves, we will say, well, that's what my mama told me or that's what you know granddaddy, you know, he just made little comments like that at the dinner table, or you know, I had a great-great grandfather who did such and such. Um, so it's really a deeply spiritual question, and the add-on to that question is, what are we going to do to um, to liberate ourselves from those thought processes? Uh, or or that bondage. And part of the way, I think, to break free of those thoughts and feelings, uh, if you've read the book Just Mercy, there's the concept of proximity. If you, let's say, you're a white middle-aged man and you don't have many friends who don't look like you, well, what if you had a Black friend who uh, and in my case, you know, I played football at Davidson. I used to start fights in the locker room to get us riled up before the game. And we had, <laughs> you know, it's black guys, white guys, we're all <laughs> throwing starch at each other. And so what if you had the opportunity to, to meet a black person or a black guy that ch- so deeply that it challenged your beliefs about black people? And I think that's where it needs to start. We have to cross these artificial barriers that we've raised to keep us separated, rather through, through race or socioeconomics or you know level of education. We need to break those barriers so we can come to the realization what we already know is human beings are human beings. And let's make judgments based on, as King would say, the content of Mike's character, or how Veronica treats me as a human being, or uh, versus the fact that Boris is a black guy. So I I'm going to automatically assume certain things about him. So there's a there's a need in this country to cross those lines, um, both authentically. And regularly, um, and that has to be one of the things that we commit ourselves to.
1: I agree. Yeah, those conversations are crucial, and you sometimes we surprise ourselves on how we can find common ground. I think we are so installed in our minds how different we look, but we forget that by having a conversation and telling each other stories, how similar we can be. I remember the first time I heard Boris's story and I was like, oh my God, me too, or me too. And, and there was so much commonality. And here they are, two different people who grew up in two different, completely different places who have so much in common. And, and that's, to me, that's the challenge that I would say to our listeners is, have those conversations to find that common ground.
0: Yeah, outstanding. Thank you for that. So, wrapping this up for y'all, Aldersgate is a big organization with more than five hundred residents and a thousand employees. What commitment has Aldersgate taken to create change in society at large?
2: Guess I'll go first. Um, I, you know, I tend to think. The role of the CEO, um, the CEO really influences the, the culture of the organization, and people um, will what make decisions or or treat people uh, within the organization a certain way based on their interpretation of. The, the CEO's actions or, or thoughts and beliefs. And I'll say Suzanne has done a remarkable job to, um, to think about this diversity, equity, and inclusion journey, not only from a, a theoretical perspective, because as we mentioned earlier, it's easy to... Um, to send out emails and to engage in conversation, but what are you doing day in and day out? Uh, How does your personal life and your professional decisions and your professional life reflect your commitment to diversity, inclusion, equity, and um, uh, uh, breaking the barriers of of, of racism? Um, And so we have a leader who has, you know, hired Veronica to make sure diversity, equity, and inclusion is always a part of our DNA. It's always, always has a seat at the table. Uh, when we were out marching the other day, um, Suzanne was out front leading the pack, uh, not not only to, to take pictures, but I know her well enough to, to know that she was there because she really, really wanted to. And she shared conversations with me about, um, you know, explaining these issues to her son and how, quote, pissed off he's a, he is and, and looking out and, and trying to make sense of, well, why, you know, why was George Floyd killed because he's a Black guy? And so we have a leader who's committed. We have leadership who's been hired to continue to the, the journey. Um, but I think most recently, one of the things that we've done to, to really unleash the energy around uh, creating an impacting change is uh, we understand the importance of elevating everybody's voice. Yet yeah, you work in housekeeping, but guess what? You have the ability to send Suzanne an email to say, I want to impact change this way. Or you are a nurse in our skilled nursing facility and something doesn't sit right on you. So in the week hours of the night, you say, Suzanne, what in the hell are we going to do about this? And so she's created uh, Aldersgate has a culture where we're not perfect. No family is perfect, but we have the, the the leader in Suzanne and the culture that's being created here to do something remarkable and sustainable. And I think if you um, talk to any leader across the organization, they will tell you that's the case. And uh, that's certainly my commitment and Veronica's commitment and, and others who are committed to Aldersgate and who understand the importance of change.
1: Yeah, I I agree with what Boris said. And I think I would just add a few more things. But as an organization, um, and I said this earlier, we are committed to listening, learning and acting. And um, I, I think that was very well said as our CEO um, sent an external message, but we're also committed to being anti-racist and, and figuring out together what that looks like. Um, Boris said something extremely important and is the having the voices in the room, but voices in the room sometimes don't mean anything if we don't act upon what it's been said. So that is the biggest charge that we have and that we're continually working on is how can we honor the voices that are in the room and what can we do collectively to build an organization that it's like no other that truly cares about who everyone else and that everyone can bring their own self to work and themselves to work fully. So so creating that sense of belonging of saying, You know what? I belong there. And it doesn't matter if someone else is, is trying to pursue me away from this organization. I know that I belong there because of the change that we've been able to do together. Uh, Boris talked about a march. We've, we held two marches. We held an internal march and we called it marching for justice. And we held an external march. We had a street outside blocked for us and for our residents. And, and, I think the larger message that that march sent, not just to everyone here um, or teammates or residents, but also to the community is that we mean this. We are doing this because we have been working for over six plus years to creating a different culture to building a place for all, and we mean it. So I, I think that us being truly vocal and being out there and have people see that, that it comes from a really good place and that it comes from top down, bottom left, right. And also that everyone's voice is included, but it's acted upon. It's what makes us different than other organizations.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. You know. I'd like to thank you both so much uh, for spending time with me here and hanging out on Aldersgate on air and sharing your personal stories as well as insights into racism in America. I definitely appreciate you shining some light on how we can all take actions to make a difference and help solve these major, major issues that we face as a country. And of course, we want George Floyd's and Richard Brooks's death to be the last We want lasting change, not just in how the police are held accountable, but also for society as a whole. So listeners, to see Boris and Veronica's reading list and a list of organizations they think make a difference, please go check out aldersgatepodcast.com and we'll post links to all those resources for you again. Boris, Veronica, thank you again so much. Definitely appreciate your time and uh, looking forward to talking to you again in the very near future.
2: Great. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mike. And thanks, of course, to all of you for taking the time to listen to this very special episode. And if you really want to make a difference and be a part of the solution, go to aldersgateuniversity.com forward slash racial justice to begin your journey. So listen, learn, and act. And we'll see you soon at Aldersgate On Air.